when we go from Cyrus being more the main servant to the, to, to the servant who is mentioned in chapter 42 that now becomes the servant. So now we're not looking so much at redemption from Babylon under Cyrus, but redemption from sin under Christ. Um, and maybe we should even think about how can God redeem these people who haven't listened and who haven't obeyed? Well, he does that through a, his special servant who delivers in a very powerful way. So chapter 49, verses 1 to 4. Listen to me, O Irish, and pay attention to people who are born. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, and gave me the name. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. He has also made me a selected arrow, as if he has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord, and my reward is my God. Alright, um, here we are back to the servant that has been introduced to us back in chapter 42. Where in verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold. Now we're seeing that servant again. That's Jesus. And so here is Jesus speaking, the special servant of the Lord. And he says in 49.1, The Lord called me from the womb. So, if you're called from the womb, there is a, a special service and purpose in your life from the very beginning. He, he has a special direction. God, God has a, a goal in mind, a work in mind for this servant from the very time he was born. And God gave him appropriate equipment. What did God provide for him? A sword. A sword. Uh, what... Where's the sword at? Yeah. The words of his mouth are a sharp sword. What does that mean? Absolutely. And they pierce the heart. And they cut sin away. And they perform surgery to transform men. This message of the servant has penetrating ability. It's a sword. Now, the Bible talks so much about the power of God's Word. We've seen that in Isaiah. Remember back in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 5 and 6, where there's the contrast between flesh, which is like grass, was rather, rather 6 to 8, flesh, which is like grass, and the Word of God, which abides forever. God's Word it is, is powerful. It accomplishes its purpose. And so God takes this servant and makes his mouth like a sword. And he also conceals him in the shadow of his hand. So the Lord protects and gives security to his servant. He's also made me a select arrow. 
man his quiver. So the 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 servant is has a, a sword, his mouth is sword, and he's got an arrow. What would be the difference in military terms in, in when you'd use a sword and when you'd use an arrow? Yes. You'd use a sword in it, like hand-to-hand combat. You'd use the arrow to attain targets that were farther away. This servant is equipped to win in hand-to-hand combat, or to win when he's got to pick them off when they're fleeing. He is the servant that has the preparation, he has the purpose, and he has the mission and the equipment. To, to accomplish God's purpose. He's hidden in God's quiver. So here's the servant who's an arrow that God's got hidden down in his quiver. And, and that might uh, make us think about passages like 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, where uh, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. God pulled the arrow out of his quiver at just the right time. You know, there was a time when all this purpose was somewhat veiled, uh, was not revealed, and then God pulled the arrow out. And, and God was able to strike uh, the, the appropriate targets at the right time. That's a pretty uh, powerful passage already looking at the work of the servant. But who is the servant, verse 3? Israel. Israel. <laughs> that who you thought it was? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Israel in a little different sense than what we might first think. Look down at verse 6. Still talking about this servant. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations. But now wait a minute. Or even verse 5. He's for me to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. Now, if, there, if, if, if the servant is the nation Israel, how will the nation Israel bring Israel back to him? It's like the servant has a mission to the nation of Israel. You can't exactly have a mission to yourself. So I think that we need to see this servant as the, sort of the ideal Israel. The fulfillment of of Israel's call, the true Israel. Um, you might think about uh, a passage that I think probably uh, Roger would have thought about in Hosea chapter 11. 
Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, in Hosea 11, what's he talking about? Exodus. You know, Israel was small, a son, and God called him out of Egypt. And he says, the more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing the Baals and burning incense to idols and, and, and so forth and so on. So this passage, it says, out of Egypt, uh, I've called my son, is the exodus of Israel from Egypt. But do you know where that passage is quoted? Matthew 2, it applied to who? Jesus. How does it apply to Jesus? God ever called Jesus out of Egypt? Yeah? What was that? <laughs> yeah, remember how Joseph and Mary fled down to Egypt? Then God told them, told Joseph, that the ones that were trying to kill Jesus were dead and called him out of Egypt. He went back to, to Israel, went up to Galilee. Well, that seems weird. If the passage is talking about the nation coming out of Egypt in the Exodus, how could Matthew cite that passage as being fulfilled in Jesus coming out of Egypt when, the, when Herod the Great dies? Well, let me show you something that I think is kind of helpful. Some of you have seen me do this before. Um, but you've got sort of this uh, picture uh, if we can kind of diagram this, I'm not a good artist, but, but you've got, you know, Israel coming out of Egypt. <laughs> and uh, when, Jesus, when Jesus comes out of Egypt, or when, when, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they went across what? The Red Sea. So we'll put the Red Sea in here. They go across the Red Sea. Uh, the Red Sea. And then they go where? Yeah, they go to Mount Sinai. You guys know where I'm going with this. And then um, they, they, they go through and eventually end up in the Promised Land. Now, in Matthew 2.15, Jesus went out of Egypt. And then did Jesus cross the Red Sea? He was baptized. And uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 10 talks about how the Israelites were baptized into Moses in the cloud of the sea. So Jesus climbed Egypt. He goes through the, the sea. And then, then, you remember where Jesus went right after the wilderness. So Jesus in the wilderness now. The Israelites were in the wilderness for how long? Forty years. Jesus in the wilderness for how long? Forty days. Now, in the wilderness, uh, forty years, the Israelites did what? They fell and died. In the wilderness for forty days, Jesus did what? Yeah. 
He obeyed. He never gave in to the devil. He was the Israel that the other Israel was supposed to be. And then, after his wilderness experience, where did Jesus go? In Matthew. Went to the mountain and preached the sermon. What did Moses get on the mountain? The law. He got the Ten Commandments. So Jesus gives the constitution for his kingdom on the mountain. So what you see in Matthew is, step by step, Jesus is retracing the steps of Israel. But the thing with it is, Israel, as God's son, was a dismal failure. Jesus fulfills the destiny of Israel. He becomes God's pure, righteous, ideal son. The son that God wanted his people to be, but they didn't accomplish. So Jesus ends up being appropriately seen as the real Israel, of which national Israel was a faith facsimile. Does that make any sense? There's a lot of that in in the uh, Bible where Jesus fulfills the the shadow. You know, you have have Israel in the Old Testament, but Jesus in a greater and fuller sense is Israel in the New Testament. He, He more or less fulfills what Israel should have done and what Israel should have been. He's the true Israel. Remember Jesus when he sees Nathaniel in John 1? What does he call him? When Jesus sees Nathaniel. And Israel, I did deep. He's a real Israel. You know, most of them weren't. But this this one was. Um, and, And this fits in with the biblical teaching that there is such a close relationship between Christ and his people. A close enough relationship that Christ considers his people to be his what? His brethren or even his own body. Yeah. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Because we're his body. Um, And interestingly, Israel, the, the, the word Israel comes from where? Yeah, but where, does, where do we first read about Israel? Jacob. Uh, Jacob. Israel was first a person, then a nation. And so in Jesus, Israel sort of reverts back to a, a person again. So, God is accomplishing in Jesus his purpose for Israel. Not that Jesus is the nation Israel. Jesus actually had a mission for the nation Israel. Jesus is the ideal Israel, the the son that that Israel always should have been. I'll pause there for a moment. Does that make any sense? You have some questions or comments about that. I'm saying then that when he calls Jesus Israel, he doesn't mean national Israel. I'm not saying the servant is national Israel. It's the ideal Israel, the ideal son of God. Logan. Uh, in 
Sure. I mean, I think all that fits together, Hebrews 4.12, and, uh, and so forth. That the words of Jesus are cutting and sharp and very effective. Alan? I guess on the diagram, like, um, were, they, were they in the wilderness, like, after the mountain? Both. Both. Okay. But the 40 years comes after the mountain. Okay, so I guess you just don't see the connection. But I guess it's not really a huge deal. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that every detail is parallel, but there are some remarkable parallels in the beginning of Matthew between Jesus and the history of Israel. Other questions and comments through three. Well, then look at four. How did this servant feel about his work? Yeah, why would he have felt that? Would Jesus have had a reason to think so? able to say what he says in verse 4. Can they try to stone him? Yeah, when they try to stone him. Show us a sign. Show us a sign. When they try to make him king. And what happens as a result of that? It goes away. And then preaches a sermon that causes them to go away. Remember that? You know, the crowd dropped from 5,000 to 12 in one sermon alone. <laughs> Or had any of you ever preached and had that kind of result? <laughs> uh, wow. He came to his own, and his own received him not. You can see why he might say, I have toiled in vain. I spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Do you ever feel that way? I mean, you know, here's Jesus. God's called him from the womb with a mission. He's given him a mouth, which is a sharp sword. He's made him a select arrow, and he's concealed him until the right moment. He, he says, God says to him, you're my servant Israel, to whom I will show my glory. You've got this great mission. I'm going to be glorified through you. And the servant says, I've told him faith. I spent my strength for nothing. That is all for nothing. I've done all this work and there's nothing to show for it. You ever felt like that? Yeah, I think that's probably one of the most frustrating things of life. I, mean, you know, I don't say this as about my children because I, mean, I have good children, but I mean, in my mother felt this way about me. Um, you know, so many times she did so much, she did without, so that I could have a lot of things. Um, my parents were divorced and I worked hard on her. And I know a lot of times I really hurt her. She, I remember her store one time and I wanted to, I wanted to nail them. And she didn't have the money. I mean, it was really hard times. And in a lot of ways I was spoiled. But she bought that for me when she didn't have the money. And a lot of times I gave her so much grief. And I'm sure... Every parent has felt that way to some degree, that you, 
same way with preaching or teaching people. Teaching, you teach, and you see this so so many of the same response Sunday after Sunday, they sit and they sit. And it breaks your heart and you feel like, what in the world am I doing? Let me go out and dig a ditch where I can see some results. That's what he's saying right here. That's a great way of describing that. And I think we do feel that sometimes. I think in our spiritual work we feel that sometimes. Do you ever feel like I've taught and I've taught and I've worked and I've spoken and I've pleaded and I've persuaded and I've encouraged and I've rebuked and it is in vain for nothing and vanity. So what do you do in that situation? Well, what does this ideal servant do? Yet, surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. He commits himself to God. He feels what he feels. But he trusts in the Lord even at that. Discouragement, disillusionment with the results does not keep him from having a close relationship with God. He continues to believe and trust that God's will be done. The correct response to being discouraged with feeling like a, a lack of results is to look to God, to trust Him, to bring the results that He chooses, to bring the reward that He wants us to have. This is just a really encouraging passage to me because you can certainly see that in Jesus. I mean, honestly, I know I said that maybe a little humorously, but I just cannot imagine. You've got 5,000 people literally eating out of your hand one day. And the next day you preach one sermon and you say to the 12, you're going to leave me too. Can you imagine? I can't imagine what it would be like to have 5,000 people following you. I've never preached to 5,000 people. Or anything close to it. Take a few years here to preach to 5,000, you know. Accumulating a lot. Um, but what if you did? You got 5,000 followers. The next day you've got 12. The rest of them have melted away. Did you think, what is the use? And, and it, I don't know all that Jesus thought when he said, will you go away also? But I wonder if that hadn't crossed his mind. I, I mean, I assume that's not just rhetorical. I assume that's not Okay, so you only two. Isn't that what you you ever been in a congregation really worked hard to try to help it? Then people start leaving. You look around and think, you're gonna leave too. It's gonna give out everybody gonna bail out. You, you you try to work with some people and they go back to the world, and you're like, Well, anybody I can trust? Anybody gonna stay, stay stick with this? That would have been so hard. And when that happens, to continue to say that surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. How many questions? I think about Acts 1 verse 6 after he had came down after the crucifixion and they said, now, and they said, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? After all the time, that time and after everything you've gone through, they're still wondering. 
Okay? Not sure how to take that passage, but... I mean, after so long saying, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is in heaven. And after he was went through all the suffering and pain, they still don't get it at this time. It, are, are you now going to restore the kingdom? Perhaps not. That, that may be true. Yeah. It wasn't uh, earlier in Isaiah when Isaiah was so discouraged because no one was listening to him. God had to tell him that uh, no, no one is going to listen to you. But that's, that's kind of how it is. Yes, indeed. God had commissioned Isaiah with those words. John. And Paul, time and time again, felt lonely. Like nobody cared. You know, he told Timothy, you know, you're the only one right now that's really, you know, someone that I consider a close friend, like minded, and sincere. Philippians 2. And then nobody stood with him at his first defense. Everybody abandoned him. Yes. Most of God's faithful servants have experienced real discouragement. Other thoughts? Look at how the Lord responds to this. Five to seven. Now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him? For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him who the nation abhors, to the servant of the rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen me. Okay, the response is, now says the Lord. God responds to discouragement in his servant by speaking. And if we're ever going to overcome discouragement and disillusionment, we've got to quit feeling sorry for ourselves and listen to the Lord. We get despondent when we listen to ourselves. And so the Lord says, the Lord who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered in. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. And he sees God as his strength, even, even when he's discouraged. Well, what does God say? The God who had given him the mission to bring Israel back, God says, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God, when he's discouraged with feeling like his mission has been in vain and empty and worthless, calls him to greater responsibility and widens the scope of his mission. God says, you've not got enough to do. I'm going to give you more responsibility. You feel like a failure runs not just to Israel I'm sending you. I want you to be a light to the nations and to send salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, there's just so many things in that that are interesting. One is, would you give a task like this to a servant who's just, who's just failed in your first task? Almost. Same like it. 
sure didn't have much impact on Israel. Most people have left. Felt like it was in vain. God wants faithfulness, not results. I mean, God doesn't see this servant as a failure. He sees him as needing more work to do. He's discharged the primary, the, 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 the first responsibility. Well, it's time to give him more work. And, you know, a good antidote to discouragement is to get busy and do the work God has given us to do. Acts 19, or uh, Acts. 1 Kings 19, I think is excellent. Many years ago, I remember who? I heard a really good sermon on 1 Kings 19. You remember Elijah? You know, he won the contest on Mount Carmel, but he was really discouraged because it hadn't convinced Ahab and Jezebel and really hadn't made that much of an impact on the nation. And so Elijah flees from Jezebel's threats and he sits down under the tree and he begs God to take his life. And he ends up running on down for 40 days to the mountain. And God does a number of things for, for um, Elijah in the mountain. Um, but one of the things that God does to help him overcome his discouragement is to give him work to do. He says, what are you doing here? And he says, I want you to go and anoint Hazel, I want you to go and anoint Jehu, and I want you to go and anoint Elijah, I want God's got work for him to do. When you get discouraged, when you get depressed, when you feel empty and frustrated like haven't done anything, that really haven't accomplished something, what you feel like doing is just sit down and do nothing. And what you need to do is get up and get busy for the Lord. And that, you know, there's been many times in my own life when I've been really appreciative to God that I've got a bunch of Bible studies. Because there's days when I don't feel like going. It doesn't feel like I'm doing much, accomplishing much. I wish I hadn't set that Bible study up with this person because, you know, I just, I'm just not very motivated to do it, but I don't cancel the study. You know, when, I, when I've got it, except under very unusual circumstances, I wouldn't cancel it just because I was down. See, you go and you do it. You didn't want to, but you do it. And it's really hard to do a Bible study and not get into the study. And, and you know, just, just doing something, working, picks you up. You feel differently after you've done it. So I think God's, God's showing a, a very good approach to this. You know, maybe he's been exhausted and exasperated in his first task. God just gives him the bigger one. I don't want you to just bring the Jews back. I want you to enlighten the Gentiles also. So God calls him to greater responsibility. He's got, he's got this work to make the salvation reach to the ends of the earth. Comments and questions to this point. Amen. You see this passage being fulfilled really in a couple of ways. You look particularly at the last part of 49.6. And then look over to like Luke 2. In Luke 2, when Jesus, as a baby, was presented in the temple, um, Simeon seems to quote a line of this. Um, when he says about Jesus in verse 32 of Luke 2, he's a line of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. I think that was uh, kind of citing a snatch out of Isaiah 49, because this is Jesus. Jesus was not only to bring the Jews back, but to give the light 
to the nations, to the Gentile world. But I would also like for you to look at Acts chapter 13. Because this is another citation of this passage. And in Acts 13, verse uh, 46, Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch. And, well, the Jews had not received kindly their message. So in Acts 13, 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you Jews first. Since you repudiate and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. I place you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. I find that very interesting. Because this passage that communicates the role of the servant, Jesus, is applied to us Jesus' people as the mission we have also. Because we are Christ's body. And so the work God gave Jesus in great measure he gives us. And Paul would see the words of Isaiah 49 as properly fulfilled in us as Jesus' people. Does that make sense? And so when you look at Isaiah 49 he wants us also to be a light of the nations so that his salvation may reach to the end of the earth. I mean, that, that's the mission of the servant, but we are the body of the servant. We have the same mission he did. So think about that. Jesus has a twofold mission. You see that in verse 6. To raise up the tribes of Jacob, restore the preserved ones of Israel, and to be a light to the nation. Maybe we could uh, say that in a sense. That, that Jesus has, you know, one, one work is to restore Israel, to bring them back to God. But his second work is to be a light to the nations. To, to, to spread salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, we have a responsibility to restore God's people and to be a light to the nations to spread salvation to the ends of the earth. Which of those tasks are we mostly content with occupying ourselves with? The first one, huh? You look at most churches and how much emphasis do we put on trying to be a blessing to the people of God and restore Israel? And how much emphasis do we put on being a light to the nations? So much of our investment, of our time, energy, and resources is spent in trying to just bring some people back to God and keeping everybody happy and encouraged and having our own nice little family. Because it's nice to have our own nice little family. We enjoy it, and it's a good place to raise our children. But the mission is broader than that. That was one step of what God wanted Jesus to do, and what he wants us to do to bring his people back to him. But it was so much broader. He, he augmented the message, the mission. He 
who is also going to be a light to the nations, to spread his name to the ends of the earth. We, we got to develop more of a focus and a passion on that part of Jesus' mission. Because I, I don't think that as Christians, we are nearly concerned enough about getting the gospel around the corner. How many people live next door to us and across the street from us and all around us that I don't talk to and, and you may not talk to and we've never really tried to evangelize. You know, we have plenty of time to sit at home and watch TV and play video games and to, you know, do all kinds of other stuff. Plenty of time for our second job and our, you know, this, that, and the other thing. But no time. To, to get the gospel spread, even in our neighborhood, much less to bring salvation to the end of the earth. That aspect of the mission God gave the servant and by extension to us is a part of our mission that I think we're failing at in general. Very great, very deep. I'd say, you know, guys, I'm looking at you the vast majority of you, probably the, probably the majority of people in this group, in this, in this auditorium right now, are going to school with a lot of non-Christians. A few of you are homeschooled, a few of you are not in school. But a whole lot of you are going to school, whether it's college, high school, junior high, or whatever, with a whole lot of non-Christians. You've got a wonderful opportunity. And some of us need to think more seriously, more deeply, about taking the gospel to places where the light has never gone, where it's gone so little. That is a part of this mission. Not only for Jesus the servant, but by extension for his people. And that's exactly how Paul saw that passage in Acts 13. We may be discouraged because we just haven't picked up our mission. We've not, we've not seen that. We've got so much more to do. He didn't say to Jesus, well, until you get all the Jews converted, you might as well not go to the Gentiles, because you better take care of things at home first. Like I hear sometimes people say, well, until everybody's converted in this county, there's no reason to take it to the next one. Well, that's... Thank God. That's not the way Jesus felt about that, or we'd have never been evangelized. So that's my soapbox. If you have questions or comments on any of that, don't you want to say? Yes, JP. I just want to say go on. Um, yes, you can be discouraged in that community loyal for the word. But uh, one of my friends said that there's times where we can find the most highly of ourselves, and we think that we're too good talk to other people that because other people are in the world, we don't have to talk to them. And that we need to seclude ourselves in our own little environment, our own little world. And that can't be the case either. Like, yeah, we should be diligently studying words, but at the same time, we're going to humble enough to spread this awesome gospel that we have for us to others. Amen. Yeah, you done? Um, you talked about bringing the word to school. What are we Um, go out to people at school and say, I like to read the Bible. Could I find a time and I sit down and read the Bible? 
know, Dan's reading with Kevin at uh, study hall. Uh, I agree with you. I think, I think a lot of times we have a real narrow view of God's plan, God's purpose, and, and we can see we can see um, the need to spread you know the word where we're at. Sometimes and we don't see the bigger picture. We don't see that God's plan is more of a global plan. You know, to, to spread the word all over the globe. Um, and, and, you know, I think I think that's a, a real danger that sometimes we're more concerned with. Building our churches and, and growing in numbers, and in our, you know, building up our family, then, then building up God's family, and, and trying to trying to make sure that people all over the globe and, and all over, you know, the United States know about Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, more. Yeah, like at school, you can, like you said, you can just come up to like your friend or somebody that you know that is not Christian you might ask if you wanted to read the Bible with me sometime. Like I've asked that from a couple of my friends and they've said sure we actually went to a good study. Good. Yes, sir. Last night I was actually uh, chatting with somebody online that uh, about something completely different and I just asked him how was your day going or how was your day today? And he's like, oh, it's fine. How was yours? I was like, mine was great. I was at a Bible study. And I just dropping hints about Bible or Bible things causes people to ask questions. And then that went into, have you ever read the Bible? And that led into the discussion. And you know, hopefully it will continue. But there are so many different ways. Just dropping hints that, that you know something. And they may even know that they need you. Okay. It's kind of thinking about two of the points we made pretty close together and they can be combined is that talking about how the Lord has a faithfulness not his whole time. And a lot of times we think the two go together think a lot of times. But especially with evangelism, I know for myself trying to talk to other people about the word of God, trying to, to get them to see the truth, it's easy to get discouraged because they, they don't see the truth. Um, and I think I guess it's easy to get discouraged that way, but I think it's not helpful for anything. I mean, yes, you care about the person, but then again, you know what you can do. Trust the Lord is going to use what you've done in a way that's helpful for them and you both. And I think just, just moving on, you know, I've been time whenever I've just, you know, I've just kind of dwelled on it so much and just got me so discouraged, you can't do that. You can continue to press forward and continue to continue talking. You never see Paul back being off the one person. To more people. Amen. Yeah. I think really to start with is you know, looking at people around you, with your friends at school and your family, <laughs> having a love for them. It really is this this uh, it gives you motivation that no other hardly any other emotion will ever give you. Just love the person that you're trying to you know. Because if, if you truly love them, you won't just see them as a person, you know, a boy or girl or color short, you know. You'll see them as an everlasting soul. And that's what we need to see when we see others. We need to see them as not just being another face, but an eternal soul that we have a chance to, through God's to, through God's will to, to 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 save that soul, lead that soul to Christ. And that should be our number one priority: the love. Amen. Great. I think many times we're afraid to go outside of our comfort zone, 
Um, you know, but really, when we when we do step out of our comfort zone, that's going to be something that other people notice. You know, when we do something different, when you know, maybe we haven't been doing what we should be doing, and we're just like anybody else in school, but then we take that step and we decide that we're going to go talk to people. Uh, people are going to notice that. That's going to be something different that they see, and that's going to give us a great opportunity to talk. To yeah, I think one thing that, that discourages young people, and not just young people, everyone, but especially young people, is just finding a purpose, finding something to do that you can get um, satisfaction out of. And, I mean, what better satisfaction can you have or, or receive from doing the Lord's work? And when you do that, you get a satisfaction that comes from pleasing God, and, and that's the satisfaction we should seek after. And, and when we're discouraged and looking for purpose and looking for things that we, you know, want to invest our time in, what better uh, investment can we do you know, than, than doing the work we want? Amen. Yes. Yes, one. Um, one thing that comes to my mind is, you know, when we have um, evangelists from other parts of the world um, come to our congregation and, and tell us about our brothers and sisters in other areas and, and we hear that, and that encourages us. And we're, it's so easy to say, well, man, I want to go to Guatemala, or I want to go to Brazil, and I want to do that. But if you're not doing it now, if you're not doing it here, I mean, that's where it starts. Sure. Amen. A lost person is lost wherever they happen to be on the globe, and God is glorified when they're taught. In kind of a similar way, as, as a church that maybe send people off to, to other places, we need to, to rejoice, not just the people at that time, not just that we need to rejoice in that, but we need to rejoice that the word is being preached, because Amen. that's the accomplishment. Amen. And that's what God's talking to do. We shouldn't hold people to, to some standard that's not achievable. If people are preaching the word, then, then they're fulfilling it. Amen. And when you're restoring Israel, you're saving souls as well. Yes. You're, you're preaching the gospel and bringing people closer to God. Yes. Absolutely. It's a twofold mission, and, and he's not trying to take anything away from that first part. There's just more than just that. He also says in 7, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and its Holy One, to the despised one, this is the servant, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. You know, here's, here's his... Uh, being humble, being despised, being abhorred, being a servant. But what will happen to him? Kings will see it arise. Princes will also bow down because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. The Lord will cause the humiliation of the servant to be reversed and he will be exalted. The one who most humbles himself is the one who is most humble. And that will be the outcome of the career of this servant. <coughs> All right, comments or questions through verse 7. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the Beatitudes where the peacemakers are, are the same ones who get persecuted. Or the same idea here. We're doing our best to, to help people, and yet uh, the servant becomes abhorred and despised. So, I mean, we got to expect that we're going out on a mission of mercy um, and not be surprised in that. Amen. There's a. Um, there's a group called Economics, and we had a subject on why they don't teach religion in schools. And this one girl said, 
The reason they don't is because there's a lot of uh, proof for science and not a lot of proof for biblical scriptures. And I, I was listening to this one girl, I can't remember her name. She told her in, in, that the Bible is too, is too pure. It has, it does have proof. You just have to read it. Sure. All right, we're going to take another break. Uh, for a few minutes, and uh, a we are in uh, Isaiah 49, looking at the work of the servant. We see the servant describing what God has done in one through four, and then the Lord speaking to him in five through seven, uh, answering the discouragement that he felt. Now in eight through thirteen. We will see God describing more in detail the vision, the role that he's given to this servant. So, 49, verses 8 to 13. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable favorable time I have answered you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you, and I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people. To restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritage. Saying to those who are bound, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Along the roads they will feed, and their pasture will be on all their heights. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them, and will guide them to springs of water. I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways will be raised up. Behold, these will come from afar, and lo, these will come from the north and from the west, and these from the land of sin. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people, and will have compassion on his afflicted. Okay, so... The Lord is using this servant at the proper time, on the day of salvation, and giving him to be what in verse 8? A covenant of the people. The, The blessings of God come to the people through their union with Christ, through their relationship with Christ. He is the covenant. He is the bond between God and the people. Now the prophets, generally speaking, preached the covenant and pointed away from themselves to God. But this servant is the actual realization of the covenant and points to himself. He is the link between man and God. He is the one who's going to provide for the people to restore the land so they would inherit the desolate heritage who would release those who are bound, who would bring light to those in darkness, who would provide for them. This liberation, this enlightenment is is the work of Jesus as he brings people out of the prison of sin and out of the darkness of sin and brings them to the Lord. And he provides for them in verse 10, No hunger, no thirst, no scorching heat. He leads them, he guides them to the springs of water. I love verse 11. I will make all what? My mountains. The mountains are God's mountains. And what's he going to do with those mountains? Make them a road. You would see a mountain. It's 
especially uh, before the days where the interstates have blasted their way through mountains and so forth, you see a mountain as being a big obstacle. But God turns the obstacle into a highway. And my highways will be raised up. Maybe the idea is they're raised up so they're easily visible. So there's no, no question, no uncertainty about uh, where they are. This is going to be a, a, a great time of God's blessing where people come from everywhere, verse 12, to, to turn to the Lord. And so he encourages, based upon this tremendous deliverance, joyful celebration by the heavens, the earth, the mountains, all creation bursts into joyful shouting because the Lord has blessed his afflicted this is the mission and role of the servant, to be the one to be the covenant for the people, to be the one to release them from bondage and to bring them home to the Lord. That's the role of this servant. Comments and questions? Yes, Jay. What is the desolate heritage of and that's a good question. I mean, I would say that he's bringing them back to the land that had been desolated by the captivity, but he's really thinking sort of as an analogy with the spiritual inheritance that we receive in Christ. John? In that same section, restore the earth, is that the land or people? I think the restoring of the land is like they come back and they possess what God gave them. But again, I think he's sort of using that as a, a figure of the blessings we have in Christ. Other thoughts? Right, so that's the role of the servant. Now, that's easy for us to say, and easy to say, well, that's, that's comforting, that's encouraging, but it's not necessarily encouraging for people who are in captivity who feel very discouraged by what has happened. Because, you know, it, here you are God's people, and Babylon's overcome you. It's, they, they, you know, destroyed the, the temple, taking you away from the land. You know, what is that telling you about God? If, if, if Babylon just managed to conquer what we thought was impossible to be conquered. It might tell you one of two things about God from the Jewish perspective. It might say, God doesn't really care about you. He doesn't really love you. I mean, if he loved you, he wouldn't let this happen to you. Or it might tell you, well, he loves you, but Babylon's just stronger than he is. I mean, you know, I mean, you can't expect your God to overcome all the enemies. You know, he cares, but there's a limit. So it, it might cause you to think God was not loving or God was weak. And that's what he's going to deal with in these next few sections. 14 to 16. Wait, Jeremy. Yes. You said, how does this one tie in with the uh, other section? Or does it tie in at all? Well, I think, you know, the response to <coughs> this role of the servant in blessing his people is, 
yeah, but look at what the Lord's what happened to us. How does that fit? I mean, you know, when you come back to reality, that may not be very encouraging if you're languishing in captivity thinking God doesn't even love us or God's not even strong enough to keep us from being captured. 14 to 16. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even me may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. So here's what Zion says. What do they say? The Lord has abandoned me. Saying, you know, I've got them right there on my hand. I'm looking at your walls all the time. 
You know, I'm, I'm constantly watching over you and protecting you. John? This might be a tangent, but I've, I've had Calvinists use this passage to say, you know, God's people can never be forgotten no matter what they do, no matter if they forget, forget God and don't care about it, they're still tattooed on them. Well, you know, the thing that people struggle with is they take a verse out of context. I mean, can you read Isaiah and think God won't punish his people when they sin? <laughs> wow. So you can't make the whole book spin on its head for your vision of that verse. That's a physical punishment opposed to spiritual punishment. Well, I mean, no peace for the wicked is pretty comprehensive. Yes, Seth. You know, we've had in the previous chapters talking uh, about how God or Christ has fulfilled what Israel was supposed to be. This reminds me of how the whole law of the people were supposed to have the law written before them continually. Here it has a picture of the Lord remembering his people in the way that they were supposed to remember his law and Good thought. Right here. Reminds me of Zoom of Bailey that my sins are ever before me. I mean, you think that's what God would say, your sins are ever before me. It says that your your welfare is ever before me, and in contrast, I am willing to forgive us. Yeah, it's amazing. All right. 17 to 23. Your builders heard. Your destroyers are devastators. Your destroyers and devastators would depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All of them gather together. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you will surely put up Put on all of them as jewels and bind them as a bride. As a bride, for your waste and de- desolate places and destroyed and your destroyed land. Surely now you will, you too, you will be too cramped for the inhabitants. And those who swallow you will be far away. The children of whom you were bereaved will yet say in your ears, "The place is too cramped for me. Make room for me that I may live here." Then you will say in your heart, "Who has begotten these?" For me, Simon bereaved of my children, and I am barren, an exile, and a wanderer. And who has, and who has reared these? Behold, I was left alone from where did these come? Through twenty-three. This is the Lord God. Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and set up my standards to the peoples, and they will bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. Kings will be guardians, and their princesses your nurses. They will bow down to you with their, their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. And you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Okay. So he sees the destroyers and devastators fleeing away from God's people in 17. And he sees God's people coming together. And he sees an incredible picture when it's all said and done. Because what happens in this land of Israel where God's people dwell? 
Yeah, so many people that it's too crowded for everybody to come into the land. They all kind of elbow each other out and say, you're going to make more room for me. I, I, I don't have any space. Now, that's an amazing thing because this woman, God's people, had been bereaved of her children. She'd been a barren, exiled wanderer, and so it's like, where did these children come from? It's like a, a mother who's, who's had her children taken away from her. A mother whose who's children all die. And, and she feels forlorn and forsaken, and suddenly her house is so crowded with offspring that she can't even get any more in the door. And it's like, where did these come from? You know, I had all my children taken away from me. <laughs> What's going on? You know, where did these come from? That's the picture of what was going to happen with God's people. You know, the people were taken out of the land, taken into captivity, but it's going to get to the point where she's not going to have enough room for all these people. Now, what's this referring to? Yes, I think so. This is a typical prophetic picture in one way or another. We'll see it later in Isaiah as well, where God's people grow rapidly. They multiply and reproduce and people, uh, people of God start being brought from all over the place. And it gets to the point where the city of Jerusalem can't contain them all. That's Zechariah chapter 2. It gets to the point where the land can't contain them all. As he says here, um, it, it would be sort of the picture of Romans 11, where the, the wild olive branches are grafted into the tree. You know, and you just, you get just all these, these children, all these offspring that suddenly are brought in, and the mother is astonished at, at the number of children she now has. Now, it's an interesting contrast to chapter 47, where Babylon lost her children in a day, God's people who were bereft of their children now have so many they have no room for them all. That is what's going to happen. That's as Christ comes, the Gentiles are brought in, and now there's so many Christians. How could you ever contain them? In one spot. You see in verse 22, God lifts up his hand to the nation, sets up a flag. And what do the nations start doing? Bringing in sons and daughters. Absolutely. They start bringing more children for God's people. And they start serving them. And they bow down and lick the dust of your feet. We, we, we use an expression. Uh, if, if you see a uh, young man who's smitten with a woman, we say that she, he, he worships the ground she walks on. That's kind of the idea. I mean, the Gentiles just bow down and lick the dust of your feet, and you will know that I'm the Lord. You know, when I do that, when I merely by raising my arm or lifting up a flag, these nations bring all these descendants to you and start serving and even bowing down before you. This is what's going to happen with God's people. 
Is it true that God has abandoned them, forgotten them, doesn't love them anymore? Absolutely not. He loves them immensely. And in fact, he's going to bring a bunch more than they ever had before back to the land. Comments and questions? John, uh, 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 what do you think he's referring to? Um, all of them will gather, all of them gather together, um, and then you sure put all of them on as, all, put on all of them as jewels and find them on as price. They're referring to like, I guess, the builders. No, I think it's probably referring to God's people as being sort of an adornment to him. They become his precious jewels. Shay. I can see the picture of the, the people might be filling love but a little bit the reason that he has done this, the reason he's even taken them and put them in captivity was because he loved them, because he's judging them to try and get them to come back to him. That was the purpose for that. His punishment was in love, not just to get his judgment out on this, but because he loved them, because he's trying to purify the Jewish race. Good point. About it. Other thoughts? Bring up. So, I don't know if I understood you correctly, but you were saying this section is supposed to be a comfort to people who are languishing in captivity. Yes. If, if we're picturing it still, however, as what's going to happen in the Messianic reign, and we're going to be lives, how do you comfort to people in Well, it's talking about what's going to happen in the future. You know, it's talking about God's ultimate purpose for his people. I mean, you know, it may not happen in their day, but that's where things are going. Yes. The, you well, the previous section, you mean one thirteen? Yes, certainly. Yeah, I think I think yeah, much, this whole section has been comforting. But he's kind of responding to this question about has God forgotten his people? Well, absolutely not. And in fact, he's going to remember them so much that they're all going to come and their room, they'll be too crap for them. So I think this is just more or less an answer to 1416, not, not a different kind of a line of thought than what he's already had from chapter 40 on. Other thoughts? Yes, Tim. It almost seems to me sometimes that uh, mankind throughout the Bible that God almost treats mankind as if it's a single person. And um, if you look at in Israel and the, the uh, immaturity that they have, and if you look at maybe modern day Christians and, and we've seen we, where we are now, we can be much more mature in our faith. And so it seems like sometimes the way God treats mankind is. in which they are all one people. I agree with that. And so, it may not happen in their lifetime, but their people will be blessed. Yes. Other thoughts? Okay. All right. Um, 
captive with a mighty man and be taken away, and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with the one who contends with you, and I will save your son. I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh, and they will become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh will know that I, the Lord, and your Savior, and your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. I would compare this with verse 14. I think this is the other thing the people were saying in their sadness and, and frustration. They're saying, well, can the prey be taken from the mighty man? Can the captives of a tyrant be rescued? And, and I mean, basically saying, well, you know, we know God can't do this. We know that we can't just take people away from a tyrant. You know, I mean, Babylon is too powerful. You know, God can't deal with this. And so I think that's their other, you know, rationalization about what's happened. Either God doesn't care about them, he's forgotten them, or he just couldn't get them away from, you know, Nebuchadnezzar and his army. And the answer is, the captives of the mighty man will be taken away. The prey of the tyrant will be rescued. It is not true that God is not strong enough to deal with Babylon. He absolutely is. He will rescue them from captivity. And what will he actually do with their oppressors? Yeah. He'll cause them to eat themselves. He will, he will turn them against each other. He will he'll make them cannibalize themselves. Uh... Is it a typical picture in the Bible for wicked people to self-destruct? Can you think of some examples? Saul. You're thinking about? How he just he kept searching for David everywhere and he kind of left himself open to the. Okay. Yes. Um, is it Proverbs two or? That talks about the greedy are um, eaten up by their own desires. Okay. Yeah, I don't know the problem, which one, but yes. Amen. Yes. I think even more literal ways. <laughs> Gideon. Yeah, remember how the Midianites, uh, what great army destroyed Midian? Midian. Midian, yes. <laughs> Turned on each other. And there's some other examples of that in the Old Testament. Uh, do you remember other examples of that in the Old Testament? Uh, a good one is 2 Chronicles 20, uh, where Jehoshaphat uh, was able to celebrate God's victory as God had simply turned the enemies against each other. They destroyed each other before Jehoshaphat and his army ever got to the battle. So really, God causes those who are evil to destroy themselves. So the problem is not a lack of love on God's part or weakness. He's well able to bless his people and he's very, very willing to. Comments and questions, 49. Yes, Roger. Uh, in verse 24, it says, Can a prey be taken from the mighty man? Uh, that reminds me of, of Mark chapter 3 when yes. he says, talking about the parable that he calls Satan the mighty man. And that was kind of spiritually speaking, would that be? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting, uh, interesting idea. I mean, there might be some allusion to that here. Or, or 
maybe allusion to this there. Other thoughts? I'm sure it's helped. I mean, security for the people in here, the Lord will be fighting for them instead of against them. I'm sure the sign is like the Lord is fighting against them and punishment. But he says here, you stand for them against their enemies. So I encourage you to say that the Lord will do that. I agree. Other thoughts? All right. Uh,